Good morning, Missio. It is a uh, true pleasure and a joy to be back with you uh, once again. If you don't know, my name is Jordan Policastro. Uh, my wife, Amanda, and I are covenant members here at the church. And uh, some of you, it's great to see again after a while. Uh, some of you have no idea who I am. That's okay. Um, the last few months, uh, we've been focused on... Uh, our, our efforts have been focused in the, the town of Casanova and, and establishing a new congregation there. And um, just want to say from, from the bottom of my heart, thank you to all of you for your, your support, your encouragement, your prayers. We are really excited about what God is doing in Casanova, and we are really excited uh, for the future and what God is going to do there uh, for in the following months and Lord willing, years and decades. So... Um, just want to say uh, thank you uh, for that. So we are continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves in Mark chapter 12 this morning. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you uh, to turn to Mark 12 and read along with me. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 34 this morning. Mark 12, verses 28 through 34. This is the word of the Lord revealed to us in Holy Scripture. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, The Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when he saw that he had answered wisely, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Will you uh, just pray with me as we begin? God, I pray through your spirit you would illuminate your word to us. Illuminate the truth of your word. Illuminate the sufficiency of your word. Your word which is profitable for all doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be faithful and pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. It seems like all we want to talk about these days is who or what is the greatest. We're obsessed with with grading people and places. What is the greatest film ever made? What is the best show on TV? 
What is the greatest novel ever written? Who is the greatest athlete ever? What president was the best? What is the greatest album ever recorded? Who's the best singer? What flavor of ice cream is best? What is the best car that I can purchase? Why is the sports franchise that I like better than the sports franchise that you like? Which destination city is the best to visit? We all have opinions to offer regarding these questions. My wife and I are going to be in Nashville next month, and in preparation for our trip, I've been uh, just frantically Googling, what are the best restaurants in Nashville? I need to know the best restaurants. I don't need any of those three and four star review places. I only want the four and a half, five star review places. I don't want to know what the best mediocre restaurants in Nashville are. I want to know the best of the best. I need to know that should I never have the opportunity to visit Nashville ever again, that I experience the best and the greatest that city has to offer. We're constantly creating a system of of ranking things according to our preferences. We're always on the lookout for the greatest. Interest in these mega questions, they're, they're nothing new. Even in the ancient world, these questions were a popular topic of discussion. And the question posed to Jesus this morning in our passage has nothing to do with sports or movies or food but rather a much weightier subject matter. What commandment is the greatest? What commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus, he's not just asked his opinion about the topic. Like, hey, Jesus, what do you think is the greatest commandment? Hey, Jesus, some of us were talking and we wanted to get your thoughts No, Jesus, in this passage, gives us a a direct, very objective answer to the question. I think many of us, regardless of how long we have been followers of Christ, are, are familiar with this passage in some way. If we were asked to to summarize the core teachings of our faith, we would likely use this very passage. Love God, love people. That has kind of become the the brand tagline to Christianity. And if I'm honest, and if we're honest, as important as Jesus says that these commandments are, we, we probably spend very little time considering what they actually entail. What does it mean to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? This passage, it comes on the heels of of several other passages that we we have looked at the last few weeks of of Jesus teaching in the temple. If you remember Jesus, he makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and and immediately he he cleanses the temple. He drives out the the money changers and and those who are using the temple for monetary gain to, to turn a profit. Because this does not put Jesus in a favorable position with the temple authorities. Jesus and the disciples, they leave the city. And then they return to Jerusalem, and Jesus goes back into the temple, and we see passage after passage 
of Jesus being confronted and challenged by the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And in this passage, Jesus is approached by only one scribe. Just one lonely scribe who asks a very short and simple question. Look at verse 28 with me. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And this question, it's not necessarily out of nowhere. This was not an uncommon question for a scribe to ponder. Scribes were essentially religious lawyers. It was their job to interpret the law, similar to lawyers today whose job it is to know and interpret federal, state, municipal laws. Scribes were experts in the laws of God. The scribes had isolated 613 laws in the book, books of Moses. 613 commands in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they would divide each of these laws into two categories, heavy and light. The heavy laws were the ones that were of greater importance, and the light laws were those of of lesser importance. And within the heavy laws, there was a constant debate in the scribal community over ranking these laws. Which law or laws were the greatest laws? Which ones were the most important to obey? And so for this scribe to approach Jesus with this question, we don't know his motivation, but it was, it was an issue that was of genuine concern at this time. And then verse 29, we see Jesus' response. Jesus answered the scribe, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Jesus gives a very simple and succinct response to the question. One that is grounded in the law of God itself. The greatest commandment is a direct quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6. A passage that the, the scribe and anyone who had any familiarity with the Jewish faith at that time would have recognized. This, this statement, it, it's a creedal and, and a confessional statement of Judaism. It's a, a, a statement of faith. Any devout Jew would recite this passage every morning and every evening. It was a summarizing statement of what was believed about God and how to respond to him. It was a revelation of who God revealed himself to be and and what demands that creates in the life of one who confesses that statement. But Jesus is not just interested in leaving this statement in the past. It's not just a a bygone idea that holds little to no importance anymore. He doesn't say, well, that was then. This is the greatest commandment for those of the Jewish faith. 
No, Jesus says that this is the greatest commandment. And so for us who are followers of Jesus this morning, this is our greatest commandment. This is the commandment that we are to pursue above all else. This is the commandment that we are to build our lives on. This is the commandment that we should seek to obey in all areas of our lives. I think many of us would be very quick to say yes, amen to that. But again, perhaps we've never actually considered what that command means for us. I think firstly, to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength means that God alone is, the supreme, is to be the supreme object of our affections and desires. God alone is to be the supreme object of all our desires and affections. One of the true marks of a fo- of, uh, of for us as followers of Christ is assessing where our true desires lie. To what or to whom do we give our affection to? Who or what do we give our primary devotion to? I think often we hear a statement like this and we're eager to respond, well, I love God. Of course I love God. But really, our lives speak another story. Some of us do well enough to check off all the right boxes. We come to worship every Sunday. We attend a missional community. We, we try to read scripture at least a couple times throughout the week. But the rest of our lives, we're consumed with other things and all the while trying to squeeze God into the cracks. We all have our functional idols, things that take precedence over God in our lives. The things that we worship over and against God himself, though we may not be quick to see them or admit them as idols. We say we love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we're more focused on our demanding careers. I'll have time for God later in life once I'm more established. We say we love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we're consumed with sexual satisfaction. It's just pornography, it's just sexual intimacy, it's not really an idol. We say we love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we're consumed with the current political landscape. All our efforts are invested in in being an online political crusader who we think should or should not be in positions of government. We say we love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we are consumed with building our self-image, how people perceive us or our families. All our affection and energy is concentrated into serving these things. We say we love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, but rather than seeing God as the supreme object of our worship, we see God as the supreme obstacle to our pleasure-seeking. I love God, but man, he just gets in the way. He just gets in the way of my life He just gets in the way of me doing what I want to do. 
We worship our own self-endeavors, consumed by doing what brings us the most pleasure. These functional idols that we worship and serve show us and others our misplaced love for God. A love that is replaced by things of much lesser importance. Because to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's just another way of saying that we are to love God with the whole of our lives. Everything, all of it. There is no area of our life which is not consumed with love for God. There is no area of our lives that is left untouched by who God is. It's what we ought to think about, talk about. It's how we preoccupy our time, our decisions, our actions. It consumes us. Love for God is not merely something that occurs for 90 minutes on a Sunday morning or something that happens in a few isolated incidents throughout the week. Nor is is love for God reduced to merely being passionate about him. That's wonderful. That's great that you're passionate about Jesus. But we can be passionate about a lot of things. I am incredibly passionate about the fact that baseball is the best sport. I am even more passionate about the fact that the Yankees will triumph over the Red Sox this evening. But passion is just a way to describe emotional intensity. The commandment that Jesus gives us is to to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's much more serious than feeling passion for him. One pastor and author, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, he says it this way. He says, God is never satisfied with anything less than the devotion of our whole life for the whole duration of our lives. Love for God means that he alone is the supreme object of all our affections and desires. And if it isn't God alone, then we have a serious problem. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is no other. There is no other God but God. There is no other worthy of all our affections and desires. Our worship should not be directed at anyone or anything else. We begin to see the the purpose behind Jesus calling this the most important commandment because it, it encapsulates so many of the other commands that we see in Scripture. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Why can't we worship anything other than God? Because there is no other God. And because there is no other who is worthy of all our affections and desires. The first and greatest commandment is anti-idolatry. 
Secondly, any sin that we commit, regardless of, of who it is directed toward, is an offense against God. In other words, the first commandment is the first commandment because it is the commandment that we always break. It's the commandment that we always violate when we violate any other commandment. Sin is a violation of God's essential character, his nature. Sin at its very core is a a failure to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sin is it's the very opposite of what the first commandment is commanding. Every command that we see in the scriptures, whether it is a command that, that, that has vertical implications, how we relate to God, or whether it is a command that, that has horizontal implications, how we relate to one another, every command finds its root, its source, in the truth that God is God. Think of the way that, that God reveals the Ten Commandments to Moses. He begins it by saying, I am the Lord, your God. Why should we not take the name of the Lord in vain? Because I am the Lord, your God. Why should we not steal? Because I am the Lord, your God. Why should we not bear false witness against one another? Because I am the Lord, your God. Every sin is an offense, first and foremost, against God. King David understood this well. Amongst the terrible matter of his adultery with Bathsheba, in addition to his execution of a plan to murder Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, he cries out to God in Psalm 51. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. And at first glance, you kind of have to do a double take, like, what? David, you must be confused. Against you only? He sinned against Bathsheba, for sure. He sinned against her husband, Uriah. He sinned against the military high command. He sinned against the people of Israel. There's there's hardly anyone who David hasn't sinned against. But against you and you only have I sinned. In this cry of repentance, David is not denying the relational destruction that he has caused. He's not denying the fact that he has wounded and hurt so many But he understands that sin, as its first offense, is sin against God. In every sin that we commit, the one most offended is God. This is why Jesus says the first commandment is the first commandment. Every sin is a violation of this command. Jesus gives an additional command in this passage as well. Look at verse 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment 
greater than these. And just like that, in a couple of sentences, Jesus has summarized the entire law of God. All 613 laws compiled into two. Jesus, once again, just as he does with the first commandment, quotes another Old Testament passage for the second commandment, this time from Leviticus chapter 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this may not seem like a groundbreaking idea for Jesus to be communicating, but consider for a moment that, that you're a Jew living in the first century You've read and studied the law. You've heard the law taught in the temple your whole life. You've lived in the same community with others who look like you, speak like you, think like you. And your whole life you've been told that anyone who isn't like you is more or less a defiled pagan, a Gentile, someone who doesn't worship the God of Abraham. And knowing the law, you read a command such as, Love your neighbor as yourself. Surely you can get on board with that because in your mind, your neighbor is your fellow Jew. However, Jesus here and elsewhere completely redefines the idea of who is our neighbor. In fact, in Luke's account of this passage, after Jesus acknowledges these two commands, he's asked directly, Who is my neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds, a man is walking down the road where he falls among robbers who beat him and leave him half dead on the side of the road. A priest is walking down the road, sees him on the the ground and passes to the other side. And a Levite walks down the road, sees the man, and also crosses to the other side. But finally, it's a Samaritan who sees the man and takes compassion on him. A Samaritan takes compassion on this man. A Samaritan, a a Samaritan, they were no friends of the Jews. But Jesus says, this is your neighbor. But Jesus, don't you know, we we despise these people. These people want nothing to do with us. We don't like them, and they don't like us. But this is your neighbor. I think some of us here this morning need to hear this and and understand this. Loving your neighbor is an all-inclusive truth. Loving your neighbor is an all-inclusive reality that stretches beyond the bounds of comfortability. We don't get to pick and choose who our neighbors are. We don't get to single out which people we want to love and have compassion for. We don't love people because they're similar to us. We don't love people based on, on physical appearance or because they act like us or think like us. We love people because they're fellow beings created by God who bear his image. But not only are we to love them, we are to love them as we love ourselves. Love them as you love yourselves. 
I love me. You love you. You would do anything to care for yourself. You get upset when others speak ill of you. You grieve when you are hurting. You seek ways to better a lousy situation that you find yourself in. You seek ways to benefit yourself. The same attitude and love that we have for ourselves is to be the same for our neighbor. It's the same that we are commanded to show others. Jesus uses the word neighbor here, but he's not just referring to the man or woman who lives next door. We should love them too, but neighbor, as Jesus uses it, is a a general term that refers to all people. We should love our neighbor as ourselves because we love God. God. Loving our neighbor is a natural outcome of loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's why it's the second commandment. The two are inseparable. We love our neighbor because we first love God. One pastor puts it this way. He says, you can love people and despise God, but you can't love God and despise your neighbor. A natural outcome of loving God means that we also love our neighbor. Being obedient to the first command to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength means that we are also obeying the second command to love our neighbor as ourselves. John expresses this idea in much more blunt terms for us. You don't have to turn there, but... In 1 John chapter 4, John writes this in verses 19 and following. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God whom he, uh, love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We love because he first loved us. There are no grounds for us to to boast in our salvation. We don't possess any moral or spiritual high ground over our neighbor We were dead in our sin, lifeless, spiritual corpses. The only reason we can have the hope of salvation is through the gracious and merciful work of Jesus to save us. We're all on the same level playing field. We're sinners who have rebelled against God who are in desperate need of his mercy. We show love and mercy and compassion to our neighbor because God has shown love and mercy and compassion to us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
it isn't clear by now, notice what is absent from these two commands. Nowhere in these commands is there anything about us. There's nothing about us and how we ought to prioritize ourselves. Both commandments speak of of our lives and, uh, and how they are to be postured towards another. Not ourselves. I think many of us would not along with Jesus' teaching here in this passage, but are more interested not in the commandments of Jesus, but in the commandments of our culture. You see, the greatest commandment in our culture is certainly not to love God. And it's not to love others. The greatest commandment of our culture is to love yourself above anything else. You should be prioritizing your needs, your comforts above all else. Forget about God. God is just a burdensome obstacle to self-love. And attempting to love others should only be your posture when it suits your self-pleasing agenda. Jesus, in this passage, is not interested in your self-service. Simply loving yourself isn't an option. If you're attempting to live the Christian life only focused on serving yourself and your desires, that's an incredibly distorted view of what Jesus actually commands of us. The attention then turns back to the scribe who asked the question. Look at verse 31 with me. Uh, Verse 32, sorry. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more and all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Verse 34, And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. The scribe, after listening to Jesus' answer, decides that this is an acceptable answer. And after essentially repeating word for word what Jesus just says back to him, We are told that Jesus, in turn, finds the scribe's answer also acceptable. And Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Hmm. Seems strange. Didn't he just repeat everything you just said? How is it that he's still not far from the kingdom? We don't have the luxury of seeing the scribe's heart the way that Jesus saw it, but what's entirely likely is that even though this man wholeheartedly professed agreement with everything that that Jesus said, that he still didn't understand what it truly means to enter the kingdom of God. He probably still has no idea of the, the true offering, the true sacrifice that God requires to make entrance into the kingdom of God a possibility. 
Jesus' words here should be a very loud wake-up call for us. Meaning that we can say all the right things. We can even say that we believe all the right things. We can play the lip service game. We can say, yup, love God and love others. Amen. Absolutely. But if we don't have Jesus, we don't have the kingdom of God. If we do not have hearts that are truly regenerated by the Spirit of God to put our faith in the finished work of Jesus to save us from our sin, then we have nothing. If all we have is the appearance that we've checked off all the right boxes and done all the right things that a good Christian is supposed to do, all we have is good theology. All we have are the right words. All we have is a life that is attempting to please God through our actions and obedience separated from the reality of what God actually requires. Make no mistake. God does require our obedience. That's what makes this passage so crucial for us as followers of Christ. God does require us to obey him in all that he commands. But our obedience is now what brings us into the kingdom of God. If our obedience is what saves us, then we're toast, we're, we're done for. Because we fail to obey. So often we fail to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. So often we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves. God does not accept your obedience to save you because God requires perfect, impeccable obedience. And there's only one who meets that criteria. The spotless, sinless, unblemished Son of God, the man Christ Jesus, who lived a perfect life of obedience to the law of God because you and I as sinners could not and cannot And he gave his life as a ransom for us to restore us to a right relationship with the one true God. It's when we place our faith and our trust in his shed blood to save us from our sin. That truth and that truth alone is what determines our place in the kingdom of God. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, hear this. This is the message of salvation. If you're attempting to obey your way into the kingdom of God and trying to earn God's favor and acceptance, you are embarking on a fruitless endeavor. Only by trusting in the finished and accomplished work of Jesus can you enter the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who lived the perfect life that we could not. In full obedience to all that you commanded to be the sinless, spotless sacrifice that you require 
to atone for our sins. God, may these truths, God, may you illuminate them in our hearts to love you with heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. May we see these as our first priority as followers of Jesus. May we give our lives to being obedient to these things. And God, I pray for those here this morning who have not placed their faith in Jesus. May they recognize that it is not obedience that God requires of us because we could not obey. God, we pray for uh, this time of worship this morning. We thank you for the body of Christ, the body of believers that come together, that gather together as you have commanded to worship you. We thank you for all the blessings that you have given to us in this life. And it's in your son's name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen.